All right, good morning, everyone. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. As I was standing out here, I felt like there were 50 people looking at me to see if I had that verse memorized, those two verses memorized. I did okay. That's all right. Glad that you're here. Uh, Today is the last message in a series where we have been focusing in on Scripture, talking about the Bible, uh, who wrote it, why we read it, how we can best read it, how we can make it part of our lives. And this is part of a much larger focus that we've had on uh, where we've been talking about what it means to live a well-crafted life, and Brad alluded to that earlier, the five crafts we've been focusing on on are uh, scripture, prayer, generosity, connection, and service. And right now we're talking about scripture. And uh, the next one, by the way, that's coming up is prayer. That's coming up in a couple of weeks. We get to hear from Doug Roush this upcoming week, which is going to be fantastic. But we're going to be talking about prayer real soon. I remember the first Bible that I was given as a gift, uh, the first Bible I ever owned. Uh, It was given to me by uh, a lady I I call my spiritual mom. Her name is Charlotte. She lives in Grass Valley, and she gave me a Bible. She wrote inside of it. Uh, She wrote in 1980. I I have her her handwriting inside of it, and she said some really sweet words for me, and I go back and I read that Bible uh, from time to time. I mean, I read the Bible a, a lot, but that specific Bible, I go back and I read from time to time. It's super special to me. And I remember uh, when she used to take me to Sunday school, we would talk about God, we would talk about reading the Bible a lot. And uh, she would encourage me to memorize Bible verses, and she would tell me things like the Bible is uh, the most popular, the most powerful, and the most precious book that you will ever own. Now, we know it's the most popular, it's, it's like 5 billion copies strong, it outsold even Fifty Shades of Grey. Go figure. And it outsold, uh, you know, like Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling has nothing on guide. He's got it all taken care of. So uh, it's been translated into over 600 different languages. There's over 3,000 different languages that at least have a part of the Bible. So, yeah, it is the most popular book ever sold in any slice of time uh, throughout history. It's, it's the most powerful uh, my, my spiritual mom told me to, uh, she encouraged me to memorize a verse out of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which says that the, uh, the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's powerful. It's not stagnant. It's not stale. It's always at work. It's always living. It's always doing something inside of us. Right, Johnny? And it's a two-edged sword. That word there is, is makaira. It's a Greek word. I, I had a band when I was a kid. We, we named it makaira. Actually, that band is still playing throughout Sacramento. You can go here in makaira, play some pretty, pretty awesome blues here in Sacramento. And, uh, but we named it after this sword, this double-edged sword. And, and this sword is, is, is a close combat sword. And don't think of it as a, as a weapon, We got that one wrong all too many times. Think of it as a surgical tool. The Bible's a surgical tool. It gets inside of here and it cuts away all of the stuff that doesn't belong in here. And it repairs the things that need to be repaired in me and you. And it judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It knows what's going on inside of here. Now, ultimately, the Bible is not God. God is God. But As Jesus followers, we believe that God is speaking through the word. He's speaking through the Bible. Now, that's a crazy leap of faith. I I admit that for some. For some, it's a crazy leap of faith. You might find yourself and and you go, well, how am I supposed to believe that a book that was written by 40 different authors 
over 1,600 different years, is so, that God is somehow speaking to me through this book. And it was written by a whole bunch of different people. It was written by, by rich people and poor people and kings and historians and, and uh, magicians of music. And, you know, it's like it, it's written by so many different people. How can I believe that this is the word of God? I understand. We understand that that is a huge leap of faith. What the Bible says about itself, it says that faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. So if you find yourself in a spot where you go, I have a hard time having faith in a book like this, the Bible triple dog dares you to jump into it and to read it and to see what God has to say to you. And I love that about it. Faith comes by hearing. You want to increase your faith, you read the Bible. Now, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of fun things we can talk about, about how, like, I could tell you that I believe God has been protecting and preserving this book as, as his word to us throughout the ages. And you might say, well, yeah, that's all coincidence. But let's, let's talk about some of the coincidence slash maybe what God has been doing over the last few years to preserve and protect this. Let's say you all just got a new job, and your new job is a Jewish scribe. It is your duty, it is your job to copy pages of Scripture so that other people, handwritten copy, and distribute it throughout the world so that other people can read the Word of God. Well, what is your job going to entail? Well, first of all, if anybody ever sits down uh, to write anything, as soon as they put pen to paper, that first time that somebody writes, no matter what they do in the literary world, we call that first writing the autograph. And this is true. There's a whole study, a whole science called textual criticism. And textual critics are like the Indiana Joneses of the world. And they go throughout the world and they grab works of antiquity and they grab literature. And they compare and they contrast to try to make sure that what we have in any piece of literature is actually accurate in what was intended. Well, the first time that anybody sits down to write anything, Plato, Aristotle, William Shakespeare, the Apostle Paul, when they put pen to paper... It's called an autograph. And then everything after that is called a manuscript. Okay, so in the world of textual criticism, they go throughout the world and they try to gather up all of these manuscripts and they see they want to find the earliest manuscripts they possibly can find. They want to date them back to the, the earliest that's the closest to the autograph that they can find. So, so what happens? How does the Bible stack up in the world of textual criticism? Well, if you're looking for the works of Plato, uh, there are about seven copies that we have found of the works of Plato. And the earliest copy, the closest one, the closest manuscript that we have uh, to an autograph is 900 years, as best as we can tell, 900 years after Plato uh, wrote his work. Seven copies of that. If you're looking for Aristotle in the world of textual criticism, 1,400 years after the first autograph is the earliest copy that we have, and we have 49 copies of Aristotle in that world to be able to compare and contrast and to see if that's actually what the author intended to write. Homer's Iliad, woo, high school reading, remember that one? Wow, that was fantastic. Right at the top of my list, how about you? <laughs> Yawn. 500 years after the first thing was ever written, Homer's Iliad, we have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. Unfortunately. <laughs> the New Testament, we have 5,600 copies 
in the Greek language alone. In the Latin, Coptic, Syrian, and Aramaic texts, we have over 24,000 copies that textual critics have been able to compare and contrast. In the world of textual criticism, it, you, you cannot disprove that what is written in the Bible is what was originally written in the Bible. In 1947, they upped the ante in textual criticism because in 1947, these kids are walking by a cave and they start throwing some rocks inside and they hit some pottery. And lo and behold, what's inside of this pottery but scrolls. The entire, New, or entire Old Testament except for the book of Esther we now call these the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls rocked the world of textual criticism in archaeology. And those, those documents were dated somewhere between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D. So the earliest documents. So it's incredible. So you, can, you cannot even be a Jesus follower. You don't have to be a Jesus follower to go, okay, at least what's written in this book is what the author originally intended because, man, textual critics say that it is 99.5% accurate based on everything that we have in the world. Ah, that's incredible. That's astonishing. Now, if you are a, a Jewish scribe, this is, this is what your job is. When you're copying uh, manuscripts, this is what you're going to do. You're going to come in every day and you're going to take a bath. You're going to wash your hands, you're going to sit down with your pen, and you're going to make one pen stroke. And before you make another pen stroke, you're going to wash your hands again. Because this is the holy word of God that, you're, that you are copying. And in between every pen stroke, from there on out, you're going to wash your hands. And every time you write the word Yahweh, the name of God, you, you revere it, you, you respect it so much that you don't even speak it out loud and you don't even write it with vowels. You write Y-H-W-H. And before you write Yahweh, God's name, the name that he gave Moses when he talked to him at the burning bush, before you write it, you're going to take an entire bath. You're going to write Yahweh, and then you're going to take a bath again. And you're going to write this document that you're copying on uh, what is called an unblemished animal skin. So it can't have a scratch. It can't have a rib. It can't have a tear. It can't have a booger. It can't have anything on this thing. And then within 30 days of riding on this unblemished animal skin, if, if it's an unblemished animal skin and it survives and you're able to copy it, it goes before a council within 30 days and they're going to count every single pen stroke and every single word. And they're going to count the words from the beginning to the end to the middle and make sure that document to document they're going to arrive at exactly the same word. And if they find that any letter is touching another letter in this unblemished an animal skin manuscript, then they're going to burn it. And you have to start all over. If a copy survives and everybody says, yep, this one works, this is an actual legit copy, and it's distributed, you're going to take that animal skin that's unblemished, and you're going to wrap it up in another unblemished animal skin, and then it's going to travel throughout the world uh, for people to read, and you're going to share it. If that document starts to disintegrate, it starts to break down, you respect it so much that you're not going to destroy it. You're going to bury it into a, a whole, into a container that you consider holy. And you're going to put it in the most holy places that you can possibly find. So now, you can look at the world of textual criticism and at the, at the work of Jewish scribes. And you can say, well, it's all, that's, that's a pretty amazing coincidence. Or you can say, way to go, God. You've been hard at work 
protecting and preserving this because as a Jesus follower, I actually believe that God wants to say something through this book to you and to me. Do you have any friends that, um, that like craft beer? Oh, you said that yes so enthusiastically. I don't think it's your friend. Yeah, so, uh, well, if you, talk to, if you talk to anybody about craft beer who's like an enthusiast, who's an aficionado of, of craft beer, talk to Chris Rollins. He'll talk your ear off all day long talking about craft beer. It's fun. It's exciting. He'll tell you about the history, and he'll tell you about the ingredients, and he'll talk about the man who's trying to distribute, you know, keep the distribution down of craft beers by putting swill on the shelves for everyone, and he'll talk about it all day long, and he'll be super excited about it. And then at the end, though, if you ask my friend Chris or any other aficionado, why do you really like craft beer, they will say, well, have you tasted it? Have you tasted it? It's the best. The proof is in the taste. It's funny. There's, the Bible says about itself, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. And I've come to find in my life that the more I taste this, the more I crave it. Because it is real spiritual food. Now it costs something. Lifecraft costs something. To fall in love with this book, to, to have this book speak to me, it, it costs something. Uh, but it doesn't cost me something in the way that like hard exercise costs me something. I don't like to exercise I'm just going to go out there and put that out there for everybody. If you see me on a treadmill at the gym, I most likely don't have a smile on my face. That's why I grew this beard, so you can't see what's actually happening with my expression, because I'm hating life on that thing. I've got Lenny Kravitz cranked to the volume of 20, and I'm pretending I live in a world where treadmills do not exist. Like, that exercise costs me something. This, this costs me something different. It takes intentionality, and it takes, it takes spending time with it, and it, but it's a beautiful thing. But I still, I have to be intentional. Speaking of exercise, um, I am on an eating plan right now. I have dropped 15 pounds. I'll turn sideways so you can see it. Yeah. Thank you. I've got a long way to go. Anyway, um, a few years ago, I went to my doctor, and my doctor said, hey, bro, he actually talks to me like that. He said, hey, bro, um, your sugars are really high. You have what we refer to in the medical field as diabetes. Uh, now, you don't have to take medication for it yet. You probably will have to at some point in your life. But a lot of studies are coming out showing that some good diet and some good eating plans can really get your sugars under control. And I was like, I don't have diabetes. And he was like, no, yes, you do. And I was like, I do not. And he was like, denial is not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> like, you, you have something going on. And he said, you're going to have to stop the junk food. I was like, I don't eat junk food. Well, you're going to have to stop going to fast food. I, I don't go to fast food. Well, does anybody in your family have diabetes? Uh, only everybody. I said, yep, that's what it is. Sorry, you're going to have to live with it. You've got it. It's genetics. You're going to have to live with it. And I, I was so devastated. And I heard about this, this diet plan, this 
this book that was written called The Fast Metabolism Diet to actually get your systems working with one another and to be able to maybe control sugars and drop weight and feel good and get energy. And, and I read it, and it was fascinating to me. There was a lot of great food. I didn't have to starve myself. Um, I got to have treats every once in a while, but it was a good eating plan for me. And, man, I dropped weight drastically, and I got a ton of energy, and I lived like that for a few years. And then, for a period of about 18 months, I thought, maybe I could try some different things, too, because Snickers satisfies. <laughs> I, could try, I could try some different things, and I, kinda, I just kind of you know, let loose of the reins a little bit, and I said, let's just see what happens here. And it was crazy. I, all of that 30 pounds that I lost, oh, I found it. <laughs> I found it. And I, and I felt horrible. I felt awful. Well, recently, I've gone back on this eating plan. Now, when I'm on this eating plan, I crave more and more good food. I love eating good food. And I eat every two hours. And I eat the right food at the right time. And my systems get in check with it. And my sugars get under control. And I feel, I feel really good when I'm eating this way. I love cheese. I'm not supposed to eat it. I know it's bad for me. I'm supposed to stay away from dairy. I eat it and I, get, I have eczema. It breaks out on my hands. But I'll be darned, if I don't go to a party and there's a plate of cheese, I, it's like kryptonite. Man, I am just like, I, I, I am powerless before it. I have to ignore it. But see, I know that there's things that are bad for me and I know that there's things that are good for me. And it shows up as my not-so-secret sin. So you guys all get to know when I'm stress eating, you all get to know when I'm a sinner because it shows up right here. This is where it shows up for me. Now, you may have a secret sin. You may close the blinds at night. You may go out of town. What, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, which is a big, fat, hellish lie, by the way. It doesn't, it doesn't stay in Vegas. It stays right here and in everybody else's life that it touches. It's, it's, it's a lie. So you may have a secret sin. Mine is not so secret. I I live it out in front of you. You're welcome. (laughs) It's a giant metaphor for me about the Word of God. The Word of God, it says to taste and see. This This is the healthy food that I need. When I'm immersed in this, my systems are in check. I have energy. I have perspective I'm able to face things that come at me that I wouldn't otherwise be able to face had I not been immersed in the Word of God. And so I totally believe in it. And I want it for you. I want it for all of my friends. My spiritual mama also told me to memorize Psalm chapter 1. I memorized it as a song when I was a kid. And I memorized it in a different version than the version I'm going to put on the screen for you right now. But it basically says this. It says that you're blessed or you're happy or things are working when you are not walking in step with the wicked, when you're not standing in the way that sinners take, and you're not sitting in the company of mockers. You see that progression? And this is how it is with, with, with the awful things in our life that are bad for us. First, we walk with them. We chat with them, right? We're just walking with them. And then we stand with them. And then we sit with them. And then we get content with the things that are bad for us. I don't want to live in the, in, the, in the company or the seat of mockers. 
I don't want to stay sitting there. The Bible says in that passage, it says that the seed of mockers, the end of that is, is withering and getting blown away. Getting so weak that you're blown away by the wind or a leaf that withers on a tree. But it says if you delight in the law of the Lord and you meditate on it day and night, then you're going to be like a tree planted by water that's down by a river that has great fruit and that yields forth fruit in its season and your leaf won't wither. I want to live that kind of a life. What does it look like to, to sit in the seat of mockers? I, sometimes I think, uh, bless you, by the way. Yeah. Wow, that was the most unique sneeze. I, I'm sorry, I just called you out in front of 500 people, but uh, <laughs> that's a nice shade of red, by the way, too. Um, what was I talking about? Sitting in the seat of mockers. Uh, mockers make fun of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, not exactly like that. I was trying to be playful. Sometimes I think I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, and it's, it's not really a spiritual gift at all. Um, <laughs> Um, I don't want to sit in the seat where, this is what mockers do. They point the finger at everything that is wrong in the world and everybody that is wrong, and they make fun of them to make themselves feel better. I don't want to live in that world. Sure, it's funny for a time, but it, but it hurts, and God wants us to, to look here. He doesn't want us sitting in the seat of mockers. He wants us to delight in him, we don't want to be miserable and withered and blown away. It's funny, once upon a time, people put so much value in the Word of God. When the printing press was invented in the 1400s, you know how much it cost to print a Bible? An annual wage of an average worker. Some reports say that the average clerk's wage, it, w- it would have been three times his or her annual salary to buy a Bible. Three times an annual salary. That is crazy. You go just a few hundred years later, and it still costs over $40,000 in today's dollars uh, to, to make a Bible, like in, in the 1800s. Churches were buying Bibles, and they were chaining them to the pulpit. Because they were so expensive. Not because they were greedy. Because it was an annual wage to print one of these babies. Well, then, then printing becomes more, you know, like everybody's printing and, and more things are being printed and they improve the process. You get into the 1800s and 1858, the Pony Express, and it's still expensive at this time. But the Pony Express runs from Missouri to Folsom, California. And the Pony Express decided that they were going to spend top dollar to invest in a Bible for every rider so every rider could have a Bible in his saddlebag going across. That's crazy. And they put a Bible in every single relay station, over 190 relay stations. Those are collector's items today. If you find a Pony Express Bible, it's worth some do-re-mi. Gosh, even, even a couple of hundred years ago, the cost of a Bible was, was upwards of like the cost of a computer so weird to think that you and I could go to Walmart and get a Bible for five or six bucks. We could find the King James Version in the dollar bin. We could download it on our phones. It's amazing. 
we started talking uh, a few weeks ago about what would it be like if we had that mindset where we said, Lakeside Church believes so much in the Word of God and getting it into people's hands and getting them the right tools to study it. What if we spent an annual wage on Lakeside Church for the Bible? What would that look like? We have a bunch of crazy ideas. Let's put iPads in everybody's hand and load them up with software and, and help them study the Word. And you get an iPad, and you get an iPad, and you get an iPad. And then we pared that down and we said, what if we, at least we spent a monthly wage? Would it be worth it? Absolutely. And so we spent an average monthly wage and we bought a bunch of NIV study Bibles and we started giving them out over the last few weeks. It's been beautiful. And by the way, if, if you are here and you are new to Jesus or not yet a Jesus follower or been following Jesus for a few short years and you don't have an NIV study Bible... And it's hard for you to imagine yourself going and plunking down 60 bucks on an NIV study Bible. While supplies last, we want to put one in your hands. We have a few left. It's been wonderful to give away 50 NIV study Bibles. It's been crazy. Because we believe that God wants to say something to us through it. And it's worth a month's wage. Oh my goodness, it's worth it. In 2 Kings 23, there's this king, his name is Josiah. He comes to the throne when he's eight years old. 18 years into his reign, they're, they're rebuilding the temple of God. And there's so much irony in this. They find the book of the law. And as best as we can tell, we think it was probably the book of Deuteronomy. And they're like, what is this? They're rebuilding the temple. What is this? And so they read it. And Josiah says, is this true? They call in a priestess, and they say, is this true? Is this the word of God? It says, if we do these things, great things will happen. But if we do these things, bad things will happen. And the priestess says, yes, it's absolutely true. And they say, we have to tell everybody this. Everybody needs to hear this word. So they start pulling people together and reading it out loud. And all the people say, oh, dear Lord, what have we been doing? And they start to change the culture around them and they, they topple down the statues that were made for other gods and they, they clear the temple of temple prostitution and all of the awful things that were happening at that time. Now, there's some people in our world that say, that's the way you change a culture. We, we could change America by putting the Ten Commandments into the schools and having everybody pray at the beginning of class. And put Christians into every level of office and important positions. And, uh, and this, is a whole, this is a whole thing called reconstructionism. Like, we can turn this around. I've got, I've got some news. It's never worked. You don't change people's hearts from the outside in. What happened with Josiah and the reading of the laws, they all heard the word of God. And it penetrated what was going on inside of here. And then they began to change the culture. This is how God works. He speaks to you and I, and then the culture gets changed. You impose things on a culture and expect people to change, it will never happen. So where do we start? If we want to change our world, John Mayer, I'm sorry, you were wrong, buddy. I love your music, but the world is not going to change just for us sitting on our butts. That's Greek for bottoms. We need to... We need to change, and, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. We've been talking about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which has been so fun to memorize together. And in that, we said that all Scripture is, is God-breathed. It comes from the word theonustos. 
It's a, it's a compound word. It comes from two Greek words, theo, uh, meaning God. Neustos coming from the word pneuma, which means breath or air or life. If you ever use a pneumatic tool, you're using an air tool. It comes from the same word, pneuma. And that's where we get God breathe, God air, God life, God breath. God. Some translations say that it's inspired. They use a different word. Instead of God breathe, it says inspired. It's the same thing. What's the opposite of inspired? It's expired. What happens when you expire? You die. You no longer have breath. It's God-breathed. It's living and active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's not about rules. It's not just a list of things to do. Oh, my gosh, it's not about rules. It's a love letter from God to you and I, and He desperately wants our hearts and our minds. My goodness, when I tell my kids or grandkids, don't run out into the street, it's not just because they're cramping my style or because I like to, to tell them what to do. Oh, Grandpa's sitting on the porch with the whiskey sour, and they'll go with the kids again, such a pet peeve of mine. No, I don't want them hurt. I want the best for them. Now, are there rules in here? But yeah, but don't think of them as rules. They're, they're warnings. God is, God is saying, I, I, want, I want you. I want your heart. I want your mind. You pick your rule. Adultery. Don't commit adultery. Is it because God is going, eh, you know, I'm just going to make a list of arbitrary things. Adultery. Don't like it. No. God knows that adultery will ruin you. If you're go- I had a friend call me just a week ago. He and his wife are dealing with this in their marriage right now. It's ridiculously hard and awful and painful. And if you're going through that right now, you need to talk to somebody. You can't handle it on your own. I also believe that God can heal and restore. He, he does that stuff all the time. But adultery is ugly. God doesn't say don't commit adultery just because he likes telling us what to do. You know, if we, are we going to have a testimony night and celebrate the great things that come out of adultery? It's never going to happen. Can we grab any kid in any family and say, why don't you tell us a good story about what happened in the adulterous affair in your family? Nobody's going to have those stories. God wants the best for you and I. So it's not a list of rules. Not at all. It's about a relationship. My goodness, if, if I want my relationship with my wife to be thriving, how well would it go if I gave her a list of rules, things that she should do to make me happy? Oh, that's going to go over really well, right? Hey, babe, I need you to look pretty all the time, and I need you to keep the house clean and, and do the laundry and, and the bills. If you can, I mean, she does all this stuff, by the way. But, uh, but you know, if I, if I gave her this list, if I said, you know, to, to please me, you know, and then, and then I have some needs that you're going to have to take care of, not all the time, just every day. And, you know, I, how is that going to go? She's going to say, heck no. But she's not going to say it exactly like that. She's going to say it a little bit harsher. And something might fly across the room. Because no relationship works like that. God wants to be in relationship with you and I. It's, this mystery is a beautiful thing. 
that he's inviting us into. He wants us to taste and see. So how do you start? Well, you start by doing something, anything. Download the Bible on your phone. If you want an NIV Bible, like I said, and, and you don't have a Bible, you come talk to me while supplies last. We'll get one in your hand. You join a Bible study. Somebody told me a story last night. It was the greatest story. She came to church, said she hadn't been coming to church. She, she really wanted to come to a Bible study. She didn't know if she had the guts, and she sat out in her car going, oh, I don't know if I want to go in. I don't know if I have the strength to go into this Bible study. And somebody knocked on her window and said, hey, are you Sue? And she said, no. And they said, well, I'm supposed to meet somebody named Sue to go into this Bible study. And she said, no, it's not me. She said, well, are, what are you here for? She was like, shoot, uh, the Bible study? And she said, well, let's go in together. And she was like, no, nah, is this how God speaks to us? And I was like, yes, he does do that. It's so fun. Like, join a Bible study. Do something. Go somewhere. Find out what, what is the best time for you to read the Bible. Is it morning? Is it evening? People told me for years that uh, if I wanted to be su- successful as a Jesus follower, I needed to re- read my Bible in the morning. Well, they obviously didn't know me because I am not a super morning person. And so I ended up hating reading the Bible in the morning. Well, God doesn't impose that upon us. Read it at night. I'm, I'm in the zone like between 2 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And then I hit my second wind about 2 in the morning. That's when I need to read the Bible. So do something. Go somewhere. Anywhere. But make it a, make it a place. Maybe it's where there's coffee. Maybe it's where your friends are. Maybe it's where your friends aren't. Maybe it's someplace inspirational. My favorite restaurant is the one I haven't been to yet. It's like that with my, with my Bible study too. I like to find inspirational places I haven't been to and open up the word of God. Do something, go somewhere, and then stay consistent with it. If, if you invest in the stock market, anybody will tell you this. I'm looking at my friend Scott Hansen right now too. They talk about this thing called dollar cost averaging, right? Like you start young and you take a certain amount of money and you're consistent in putting it in the stock market over a period of time. You get to retirement at age and, and you're just like, voila, you're a millionaire at retirement because you were consistent with a little over a long period of time. It had ups and downs in the stock market, but dollar cost averaging says you're gonna, you're gonna end up okay. Well, if I'm honest, there's times in my Bible study life over the last few years where I'm not always up here. I'm not always riding high. I don't open it every single time and say, that's exactly what I needed to hear and tear my clothes and repent. <laughs> it doesn't happen every time. But somebody said to me recently, they said, I wish I knew the Bible as well as you know it. And I said, oh, that's totally easy. 40 years of immersing myself in the Bible through the good and the bad, the highs and the lows, the times when I'm shaking my fist at God angry and the time when I'm on my knees broken. Do something. Go somewhere. Stay consistent. God is speaking. Lord, thank you uh, for your word and thank you for these people, my friends. Thanks for this place. Thanks for talking about a well-crafted life. Lord, thanks for this focus on Scripture. Thanks for your word, what it means to us, what it does inside of us. It's living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. You know our heart. You know our mind, Lord. You do surgical work inside of us. And for anybody here today, God, that is saying, um, I haven't taken that 
that step of faith yet. It's hard for me to take that step of faith, Lord. I pray that um, for every single one of them, that they would know it's okay, they're in good company, but to, to take that dare and to start reading your word, spending time in it, Lord, to be consistent, to find some tools that will help them understand, to, to talk to somebody who is a follower of yours, Lord, that can come alongside them. Lord, you also said in your word that those words, these words are written that we would have life. They're words of life. And I pray for everybody in this space that you would breathe life into them. We talk about your word being God-breathed because you breathe life into us uh, through it too. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much. Amen.